Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, shipping them out, the Texas governor's plan to deal with migrants at the border. Weathered alliance, support for NATO has fractured here in the U.S. during a time of Russian aggression. Revisiting Roe, conservatives ramp up their efforts to roll back abortion rights, but liberal groups argue this is just the beginning. And pain at the pump, why the cost of gas has gone through the roof. But first, $350 million in COVID relief has been distributed in King County. A lot of that has gone to rental assistance for those who really don't need rental assistance. Joining me now is Fox 13 News political reporter Matt Markovich. And when we talk about this $350 million in COVID relief all going to rental assistance, but a lot of that to people who really didn't have any tenants, what's going on here? Well, that's what the King County is now investigating. They've finally acknowledged that in the zeal to get out all this rental assistance money, most of it is federal COVID relief money over the last 18 months, they started noticing discrepancies, what they're calling, quote, inappropriate payments, unquote. It's not fraud, they're saying. They won't go that far. But they estimate of the $350 million the county will dole out by the by summertime for all this co- uh, rental assistance money, about 1%, they really can't verify whether the people got the money they needed who needed it and whether those they're being defrauded. And for example, we talked with Leo Floor. He is the head of the Department of Community and Human Services for King County. Basically, they're the agency that's been doling out this money. And again, it's federal COVID money and some local uh, state and King County money rolled into that. But $350 million, Jeff, that is a whopping number. So basically what happens is this, is that King County asked people, hey, do you need rental help? And people had to fill out a one-page form known as an attestment. It's basically a declaration saying, yes, uh, I, I give you my name. And if I didn't have any money, how many people live in my household and what's my income? And basically that's it. They fill this form out. A caseworker calls them. There's a, on the form, it says they may follow up and do some income verification. But 35,000 people in King County filled out that form and got some money. Uh, the average person got $11,000. And that money went, 99% of that money went directly to the landlord that they, that, you know, for the rent payment. But the King County started going through uh, its monies, uh, its, its money trail, and found at least 130 cases so far where they believe some money was inappropriately given out. And for example, people started calling the county right around, you started getting the 1099 uh, miscellaneous income statements. And because this income, if you had got this uh, rental payment, it's income, it can be taxable. People started getting these 1099 forms saying, I never applied for this money. And so the county believes, well, someone did apply for me. Now that's a form of identity theft. And I think of all these 130 cases, 14% of those cases are identity theft. And then you have... But they won't call it fraud. How how is this not fraud? Well, they won't call it fraud right now because they're not a legal... They're not a criminal agency. So some of these cases are now being... 
handed over to local prosecutors and local law enforcement for further investigation for potential criminal crime, even a civil crime. But the county is falling short uh, of calling it fraud. So just doing a little quick math here, $350 million is what King County distributed for rental assistance in the era of COVID. Average rent in King County, or I should say median rent, $1,736 a month. That's enough for nearly 17,000 people to live rent-free for a year. And you're saying a good chunk of that has gone to people that didn't need it? Well, right now they've estimated so far, and they're still counting, the figure was $2.5 million of that 300, eventually it'll be spent $350 million, $2.5 million. They've caught some people and told them, hey, you need to give it back. And they've got already more than a million dollars have been given back. But in some cases, the cases that we're talking about here is about 130 of them. 30, they've already, they caught it before the money was actually distributed. So roughly about 106 cases, the average range of the payments, Jeff, was $20,000 to $45,000 each. Someone just got, you know, based on, maybe no income verification. They, and that money went directly to the landlord. But people are reporting that the landlord is falsifying cases, creating tenants that don't exist. So this is not and, so much tenants that are applying for relief that they aren't entitled to. It's the owners of the property. That's right. And so the the culpability is both on what Leo Floor, the head of the uh, Community Human Services Department for King County, says, you know, he won't break down how many cases involve a landlord possibly getting misappropriated payments or a tenant doing that. But all, all cases kind of aim at the landlord as somebody who's culpable in it. Just like I said, a landlord filling out this form on behalf of a tenant that may or may not exist. So there were no methods to, to check the, these applications for the funds? There was no checks and balances well, it, here? It was just literally a phone number, uh, email address, and a caseworker is supposed to call up and the money went out. Now, you got to understand, and the, and the county's actually admitting this, they didn't want to get anybody caught up in red tape at the very beginning of COVID. We're talking back March of 2020. To get this money out, people are starting to lose jobs, businesses are closing, people don't have any income, but those rents are still due. And people are living paycheck to paycheck, rental month to rental month. So they knew that if we didn't get some of this money out quickly, people were going to lose their homes. So in the zeal to get the money out quickly, they oversimplified, some people say, how to get this money with this really simple attestment form. And people filled it out and got the money. Well, now what you're seeing is the repercussions of that quick effort. Although, you know, people said that's a good way to get the money out fast, but people took advantage of that. So now they're going back through the books. They've hired a third party auditor to go through all the, the payments to find out, hey, we've discovered on our own, there's about 130 cases. Now this auditor is going to go through all these payments. There's 35,000 people that got money and they're going to start to figure out, well, maybe there was more than just 130 cases. That's the third party auditor's job. So in those 130 suspectedly fraudulent cases, you have about two and a half million dollars that was distributed, but how much money is King County going to spend to get that money back? You know, that's a great question. I did not ask how much it's going to cost to have this third party auditor go through the books. King County and Leo Flores telling me their main goal is to get the money back because there's still 7,000 people in the queue for this money. There's people out there who have applied and didn't get a dime. 
who could really use this money. And that's just in King County, let alone Pierce or Snohomish County. Matt Markovich, political reporter for Fox 13 News in Seattle. Thank you so much for your time and insight, and we'll continue to follow this. We will. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Republicans are wrong to blame President Biden for rising gas prices, but Democrats equally wrong to blame oil executives. So who or what is at fault? When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Members of Congress from Washington State were among the grill masters this week when a U.S. House committee turned up the heat on oil company executives. Corwin Hake has more. When the price of a barrel of oil soared just after Russia invaded Ukraine, gas station prices spiked as well. Now, Washington 8th District Democrat Kim Schreier notes the cost per barrel has fallen, but the price at the pump has not. And I'll tell you, when I tell my constituents that at the same time they're paying these skyrocketing prices at the pump, $5 in my area, your companies are making record profits. They're mad. And they should be. Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Spokane Republican, says high gas prices are unrelated to record profits among U.S. oil companies and have little to do with the Ukraine invasion. This is not the Putin price hike or the result of companies suddenly deciding to make money in 2022. This is the Biden price hike. And it's been a steady climb since he took office. Oil executives protest they are struggling to ramp up production enough to affect retail gas prices. Schreier isn't having it. Frankly, given your profits, you could drop prices without even increasing production. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. So what is it? Is it a problem of the Biden administration or a result of their policies? Or is it as a result of the oil companies jacking up prices? Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. You paid attention to these here in great detail and did we really learn anything a little bit uh but none of the above would be the answer to your question biden is calling it the putin price hike the republicans are calling it the biden price hike and if you looked at the title of today's hearing you would know that the democrats in charge of this hearing have already decided what who's to blame here because the hearing was called gouged at the gas station So uh, they think it's price gouging on the parts of the oil executives. The oil executives have a much different uh, look on this. And I think you mentioned this toward the beginning where uh, they said it's going to take a while to ramp up production to make any discernible difference in prices. And the reason they haven't, in case you haven't seen, it was in all the papers, there's been a pandemic for the last two years where most Americans in this country, and matter of fact, most people around the world didn't do much driving. So oil prices plunged down to record lows in some places below $2 a gallon and stayed that way for quite some time until things started to get back to normal. That's when the vaccinations became more readily available, which just happened to coincide with the fact that Joe Biden uh, was inaugurated and went into office and prices started to creep up. The reason being is a lot of people wanted gas and the gas companies hadn't really pumped that much or refined that much. They didn't want to be sitting on oil that they couldn't sell. And so just as every other industry has had supply chain problems and worker problems because people were all sent home and they weren't going back to work, oil companies have had an equally hard time getting people to the refineries and to the oil well pumping places to make sure that oil production would get ramped up. That has, again, slowed the output of oil. And this is all of what the oil executives said. Uh, Oddly enough, none of them said that any of the Biden policies have affected any of this. It is only Republicans on the panel that have said that, saying that, well, the XL pipeline, the Keystone XL pipeline, which, by the way, people confuse. There is a Keystone pipeline that is pumping oil every single day in this country. 
The XL pipeline was kind of an offshoot on that that would pump more oil, but it wouldn't pump it into our gas tanks. It was taking it from Canada oil shale fields uh, and helping deliver it faster to the middle of the country, which would then go in other pipelines and get down to the Gulf where it would be refined and more likely get sent out of this country. Even if President Biden had done nothing on that XL pipeline, there wouldn't be a drop of oil coming out of that today, tomorrow, next week, perhaps not even next year or the year after. That's how long it would take to get this thing built. So it would have no discernible effect on any of the oil prices in this country. Well, here in Washington State, and in particular on the West Coast, we've seen extraordinarily high gas prices, uh, at least relative to the rest of the country. A lot of that has to do with Washington State's relatively high gas tax. When I filled up just the other day, it was uh, right about $5 a gallon. But uh, from what you're saying, it, it sounds... Less like it's the current administration's fault, less like it's the oil company executive's fault, despite what the two parties would have you believe, but it's more a result of what's going on in the global market. Well, that's the case. If you look at gas prices around the world, if it's, this was indeed just something that President Biden was doing, then you would see gas prices lower in every other country. And that's not the case. In fact, it's significantly higher in most countries. And it's because of the same supply and demand problem that we are having here in the United States. Now, that doesn't account for the fact that uh, Democrats were just roasting these uh, CEOs for making record profits during this while prices are really high, even though they say that the margin is very low in terms of profit. Well, if that's the case, how are they making record profits? That wasn't really explained in the hearing as far as I I can see so far. The other thing the oil companies uh, claimed is that they have little to do with what the price is at the pump, that that's all market forces and competitive forces at local gas stations. So if you have six gas stations on a major drag and one of them gets uh, generic brand gas much less expensively than Exxon or, or Shell or one of the other companies sells to their owner-operated stations, but again, many of them are not owned by these gas companies, and suddenly everyone's going to the low price gas and the more expensive gas prices have to lower their prices to be competitive. And the, uh, the oil companies are saying, really, that is where the price gets set. Kind of relating to that fact, I had a friend who about 20, 25 years ago was working at a gas station and he was telling me his job was to early in the morning before he opened up, drive around town, check the prices and make sure that the price that was set that day was lower than anyone else's. So, I mean, this seems to be something that has a lot of variation in location. Well, not only that, but we're also seeing some states, for example, in Maryland, where I live just outside of Washington, D.C., Maryland's governor has uh, temporarily basically put a moratorium on the state's added gas tax. That's knocked 18 cents a gallon off the price of gas in this state. That's a significant amount of money especially if you drive every day and you have to fill up and you have a car that doesn't get particularly good gas mileage. So that's good for us, the consumer, maybe not that great for the state, which relies on that 18 cent a gallon gas tax to pay for a lot of bills the state has. So what did the oil companies, or for that matter, the lawmakers say about any relief coming at the pump? Are we expected to see prices drop in the coming weeks and months as production ramps up? Well, that's the problem. It it takes a while for it to ramp up. Uh, The oil company executives are saying it it could take 12 to 18 months to get back to the full capacity we saw before the pandemic. And even then, they're not certain about that because supply chain problems, again, getting the oil to these refineries 
if they're in trucks, do you have enough truckers? If you have workers that need to run these refineries uh, and, and also truck truckers to drive those trucks, if you can't get those workers, then the cost of everything goes up. So there's a lot of variables involved in this. And then the uncertainty of what's going on in Ukraine and the fact that Russia provides a, a major chunk of oil uh, to a big part of the world. What about domestic production? I can imagine uh, at least the Republicans are arguing this requires more drilling. Oddly enough, President Biden agrees with that. And <laughs> he's saying that there are upwards of 9,000 leases out there, although some people argue that many of those leases are in litigation. So maybe it's only 6,000. But still, there's a lot of regulation involved in these things. You get a lease to, to drill on land, it doesn't mean you just put a straw in and the oil starts pouring out. You have to do surveys. You can say, we think there's oil here. And then you have to do test drills to find out if there's enough to put a, an oil well in there permanently and start pumping. And a lot of times you come up dry. So there's a lot involved in getting new oil out there. Uh, not so much just, hey, here's your lease. Go ahead and bring us some oil. It, it, it's a pretty complex situation. And it's something that oil companies, again, have not been doing for the last couple of years. Uh, mostly because of the pandemic, and it's not profitable to pump oil when no one's buying it. Meanwhile, Elon Musk and Tesla laughing all the way to the bank. Andy Field, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks. When we come back, the right flank of the GOP has soured on NATO. What does it mean for America's participation in the alliance when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. As the invasion of Ukraine rages on in Eastern Europe, here in the United States, support for the NATO alliance seems to be fracturing. 63 Republicans voted against a symbolic measure showing support for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Joining me now is Aaron Blake. He's a reporter for the Washington Post. Well, this seemed to be kind of a who's who of the Freedom Caucus, the more extreme members of the Republican Party. What reasons did they give for voting against it? Well, you're right. This is a, a, a situation in which the House Freedom Caucus tends to lead the charge when it comes to voting against some of these more consensus issues. But I thought what was interesting about this is that it went well beyond that. The 30 percent of House Republicans uh, is much more than just those House Freedom Caucus members. Um, this is this is an interesting vote, and I think it's important to look exactly uh, what's in this resolution. It was a symbolic resolution reaffirming support for NATO, uh, but it did uh, contain other things. One of the things that critics of it highlighted was uh, the idea that it would uh, affirm support for uh, NATO, uh, you know, pushing democracy in in its ranks, and some felt that that was somewhat provocative to countries like Hungary and Poland, where Poland, where we've seen some democratic backsliding in recent years. So that's one crucial uh, part of this that I think is important because sometimes these symbolic resolutions can be tricky for certain members, and they can include provisions that they might object to, even as they agree with the, the thrust of the bill. But to the extent we did see Republicans actually weighing in on the substance of reaffirming NATO support, they did raise some concerns about just how strongly we should be doing that right now. One of the Republican members, Warren Davidson from Ohio, basically thought that the language in, in the bill, which said uh, we will unequivocally support NATO, sounded too unconditional. 
And the backdrop here is that there has been a portion of the Republican Party that has been skeptical of NATO in recent years uh, and even kind of anti-anti-Putin to some degree. You're talking about people like Fox News' Tucker Carlson. But when it comes to an actual expression in a vote of of that NATO skepticism, uh, I think that this week was was particularly important, especially when you compare it to other recent votes involving NATO, which I ran down in the piece. And you write in that piece that few of the Republicans that voted against the resolution gave a really nuanced answer. Yeah, there, there are, I think, really what this what this plays off of is not necessarily ambivalence, but maybe not taking as much of an interest in what's transpiring in Eastern Europe uh, as much of the country has. Uh, there is, of course, a broad bipartisan belief that the United States should not be getting involved in this war with troops. Uh, but when you go beyond that, when it comes to things like sanctions, when it comes to whether NATO should be expanded further, when it comes to some of these finer points, um, you know, banning Russian oil, th- these things are all are all ripe for more disagreement than those broader kind of consensus issues. And uh, I think when it comes to the future of NATO and, and the, the future of NATO is being charted right now, including the potential additions of countries like Sweden and, and Finland, um, the the support that exists for for NATO in a country like the United States, even with this overwhelming vote, that kind of increasing um, uh, skepticism or or not necessarily wanting to lend unequivocal support, as one of the Republican members of Congress put it, that that's something that resonates when when other countries are thinking about expanding the alliance. And I think that it's something that maybe this vote doesn't say a whole lot about. But it's something that's worth watching, given the the trend of some of this rhetoric, especially uh, among conservative commentators uh, since the war began. How much of this change within that wing of the Republican Party is a result of Donald Trump's presidency, who made a big deal about, hey, NATO countries need to pay their fair share. We can't foot all of the defense. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I think it's an outgrowth of, of Trump's posture. You know, he was always uh, saying that actually he supported NATO, but he just wanted other countries to pay more. So this wasn't about being anti-NATO per se. Um, we know from reporting, including by my colleagues at The Washington Post, that that's not the whole truth. Uh, that in fact, at certain points, Trump actually considered pulling out of NATO and, and thought that he might actually be able to do that in the second term. That would just be too toxic for his first term. Um, so I, I think that he, in many ways, planted some of the seeds for the NATO skepticism that we're seeing in this vote this week. But at the same time, even when all this was taking place, you know, we had a, a NATO a vote on reaffirming support for NATO in the Senate in 2018. That passed 97 to 2. In 2019, we had a bill that passed the House that would have prevented Trump from pulling out of NATO. And that was opposed by only 22 House Republicans. So we went from 22 House Republicans opposing that, something that was pretty directly aimed at President Trump, to now 63 voting against this uh, this symbolic resolution, something that doesn't even actually have any effect. Um, I think that suggests that there has been some additional movement on this issue and that it all didn't all just transpire during the Trump presidency. How much of this is a proxy political battle in the sense that if you are a Donald Trump supporter, you then therefore support Russia and Vladimir Putin? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I think that if, if there's anything that we've seen in recent years, it's that the conservative movement has in some ways become defined by being against the conventional wisdom, um, you know, being provocative, um, questioning 
basically any governmental authority. And when it comes to NATO, this is a an international alliance that uh, that has lots of power. And so it's very much in keeping with the thrust of the the Trump era that there would be a significant number of Republicans that are causing for a little bit of a break with uh, with that kind of steady support for NATO over the years. But also, you know, NATO hasn't always been an easy vote in in Congress. There was the expansion in the late 90s into uh, Eastern Europe, into Hungary, the Czech Republic, uh, and Poland. And, and this was not necessarily going to be a consensus issue. This was very hotly debated. It wound up passing overwhelmingly, but that wasn't a foregone conclusion. And so um, I, th- I think there were many reasons why that debate was was difficult and why the the, the the members disagreed on things and it took a long time. Um, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see that with a symbolic resolution. But but again, this is something that just reflects our modern politics and, and especially the conservative movement. Peace and friendship with all nations and tangling alliances with no one. I'm surprised no one has invoked that. <laughs> yes, it's it's, um, you know, one of the things that I really was kind of regrettable about what happened this week was that there weren't a whole lot of Republicans who actually explained their votes. Um, you know, to the extent that this is reflective of, of a new posture toward NATO, you would think that they would come out and say something about it. But but we really don't have a whole lot of information on precisely how these members or why these members voted like they did. But again, I expect that these things will come up over and over again. And uh, it'll be sure interesting to see what that next vote involving NATO is like and and also how the party continues to evolve, especially Um, as this war progresses. All right, Aaron Blake with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. Meanwhile, Russia's model for espionage is under attack, especially after the atrocities in the Ukrainian city of Puka were discovered. Hundreds of Russians have been expelled from nearly two dozen European embassies since the beginning of the war. Shane Harris following it for The Washington Post and spoke with Taylor Van Sice. According to Western intelligence, Shane, how many of these so-called diplomats were actually more likely Russian spies? Well, it's hard to get an exact number, but you could probably, I would think, safely estimate that well over 100 of these 400 who've been kicked out are, are working functionally as intelligence operatives, and that others might be you know, sending information home more informally. But this is a pretty well-honed uh, practice uh, to have intelligence officers nominally serving as diplomats when actually they work for the intelligence services. So kicking them out means that you've kicked out your intelligence gatherers or Russia's intelligence gatherers in many of these countries. And this is a pretty critical time for diplomacy, uh, even in the digital world, though. How important are these old school cloak and dagger operations for Russia to be uh, operated out of diplomatic posts? They're, they're quite important. This is what falls into the category of what we would call human intelligence. So this is people gathering information recruiting assets or agents, uh, sort of reporting what they see on the ground, things that it's much harder perhaps to get from a technical system, from a satellite, or even from surveillance. Uh, So this is really kind of crucial to how Russia goes about conducting its intelligence operations in the West. And importantly, some of these people who can be on the ground can be useful for more provocative actions as well, things like spreading disinformation, propaganda. It's not merely about reporting things back to Russia. It's also about being Russia's operative on the ground in these countries. It's important, though, to have information going both ways, even, you know, behind the scenes in a war like this. How empty are some of these Russian embassies in major European cities? Yeah, nearly empty in some cases. And that really presents a challenge for countries that might want to have some some kind of interlocutor or channel 
back to Russia. Of course, the negotiations over the war in Ukraine aren't producing anything in the way of the settlement yet, but it is important to keep those channels open. So this is one of the sort of the downsides of kicking out these diplomats. You know, you do cut off some intelligence gathering, but at the same time, you foreclose some of those channels of communication. Uh, But in this case, these countries in Europe that have kicked out these Russian officials seem to have wagered uh, that it's worth the the loss uh, in order to punish Russia and to shut down their operations. Is this likely to be a long-term action, or are we going to see, like with other scuffles uh, in the past, don't look nearly as bad as the Ukrainian war, for example, we would see them kicked out for, you know, a month or a year and then invited back? Well, you could see that if there's a settlement. I think some countries have already said that they have no, they're going to have to take steps to make sure that they don't just backfill these positions. I think this now depends on on what happens with the negotiations. Uh, you could ask kind of the same question about will the sanctions ever be lifted? Uh, if the war gets to, you know, is over and Russia gets to a point where it is sort of slowly allowed back into you know, diplomatic circles or the community of nations, it seems a long way off, uh, then you might seem to uh, see some of these positions be refilled. But for now, I think they're effectively uh, shut down. Shane Harris with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for The Washington Post. And you can find all of Shane's coverage online at WashingtonPost.com. Thanks for joining us today. That's Taylor Van Sice. Still to come, Texas Governor Greg Abbott vows to ship immigrants out of Texas. What he didn't tell you about his plan when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Immigration, always a controversial topic. And the state of Texas this week announced it has hired 900 buses to ship undocumented immigrants from the border to Washington, D.C., to drop them off at the steps of the U.S. Capitol and make them the Biden administration's problem. Now, Governor Greg Abbott says Texas state troopers will meet migrants at the border wearing full riot gear and will put them on the buses to D.C. But it's not that simple. Joining us now is ABC's Alex Stone. And what Governor Abbott left out is that this will be entirely voluntary. Yeah, and so there's a lot more to it than uh, than the headlines that came out that he really put out. Uh, and yeah, Governor Abbott, uh, he came out saying we're going to do what Biden will not do. We're going to enforce border security, that the, the buses are ready to go, the migrants are coming in, they're going to be put on board, they're going to be shipped out so Biden can deal with them. Uh, here's a little of what he said. Texas is providing charter buses to send these illegal immigrants who have been dropped off by the Biden administration to Washington, D.C. Now, here's the thing. Abbott is campaigning, and there's a lot of bluster in in what he had to to say, that his office then put out the details, as governors often do. They come out, they make the big announcement, and then their office sends out an email with what that order is going to be. He left out that migrants will only go if they volunteer and want to go on those buses, and that they have to be allowed to remain in the U.S., by the Department of Homeland Security, which means technically they are not illegal then, that they are in the asylum process or a immigration judge has said they can remain for now. He doesn't have the authority to round up migrants, ship them around as he wants. That's what the feds do. And now we find out, well, he's not really grabbing them. He doesn't have that authority, putting them on buses. Eric Cedillo is an immigration attorney. It's a situation where this would have to be voluntary in order to uh, you know, pass constitutional muster. But none of that was brought up at the, the big border event that was held. It was that we're going to have these troopers out there. We're going to get them when they come in illegally. We're going to put them on buses and get them out of Texas, give them to Washington. By the way, Jeff, many groups already offer free rides to willing migrants where 
wherever they want to go. And the other part being that technically they're not illegal, that the U.S. allowed them to remain. If they've got to show proof that they went through the DHS process and that they're allowed to be here. We're talking about people, again, who are, are legally here in the United States. They have every right to be here because they have been paroled by the uh, the federal government. Yeah, so it sounded uh, big, new, tough, but in the end, only for migrants who agree and say that they want to go and uh, those allowed to, to remain. But there's a lot uh, going on with Title 42 ending. You hear a lot of the conservative uh, governors making headlines with that. They're angry that it's going to end the COVID era rules of not allowing in some asylum seekers. But the, the White House is saying, look, that it's a COVID health rule. How do you say mask rules are going away, that everybody's going back to regular life? but then that that would remain. And uh, next month, that's going to go away. So you're going to hear a lot more border talk coming up in the next couple of weeks. And, of course, Governor Abbott is campaigning, as you mentioned. He's up for re-election this fall, not to mention the entire U.S. House of Representatives. And control of the House remains in balance. This all seems like a political stunt more than anything else. Well, his opponents are definitely saying that, that they are saying this has stunt all over it, that, yeah, he has the, the authority to say he's going to send state troopers down to the border to do training and put up razor wire and wear tactical gear, but they're not immigration agents and they don't have federal uh, authority in that area. And, and while, yeah, he can have his state law enforcement do some federal immigration things, that's not what their their role is. And that's what federal agents and officers, what they're doing down there. So a lot of it is for show that, yeah, maybe it will deter people from coming in. But when it comes down to the bus situation, I mean, that it really is not what it was billed. If you're going to say only those who volunteer and go on their own and only those who have come in and, and DHS says that they're allowed to be here. So there is a lot more to it. We're likely going to hear more as we get closer to the end of Title 42. But this one, not exactly uh, the, the way that it was billed. You mentioned that immigration is the role of the federal government. What have we seen from the administration itself? Well, when it comes to Title 42 ending, which is what a lot of this goes back to, uh, we know that the administration and DHS specifically, they are beefing up uh, law enforcement along the border. They, they're putting up tents and things to get ready. They do believe that when the open sign goes back up for asylum seekers that there is going to be a rush on the border here in a couple of weeks and it's going to get very very busy and uh, we've heard Jen Psaki of the White House say do not come here that this is not an open invitation we've heard President Biden say really nothing is going to change that you have a uh, foreign citizens, a legal authority to, to claim asylum in the U.S., that they will go through that process. So they're saying pretty much everybody calm down. It's not going to be that big of a deal. But we know DHS is worried about it, that just the notion of you may be able to come and get entrance, legal entrance into the U.S., that likely you're going to have a backlog of two years of people who haven't done it who are saying, okay, I'm on my way. And uh, so you're going to have these images of a lot of people likely at the border and the the White House trying to, to counter that, and they already are doing that. All right, ABC's Alex Stone, thank you so much for your time and insight. You got it. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, rolling back rope could be just the beginning. We take a look at some of the other Supreme Court cases conservatives have their eyes on when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, it's not just Roe. 
Democrats are concerned a conservative Supreme Court will strike down more than just abortion rights. You may not be familiar with the 1965 case of Griswold v. Connecticut, but its effects have undoubtedly shaped your life. In striking down a ban on contraceptives, Griswold affirmed a constitutional right to privacy. But Senator Patty Murray, a Washington Democrat, says there's a push to overturn that ruling. But we actually now have Republicans coming out and saying um, that they want to reverse Griswold. One of those wanting to reverse the decision is Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. Constitutionally unsound rulings like Griswold versus Connecticut confuse Tennesseans and left Congress wondering who gave the court permission to bypass our system of checks and balances. Blackburn and other Republicans say such issues should be left to the states. Now, if Griswold is overturned, conservative states would then be allowed to ban the use of contraceptives. But it's not just condoms, IUDs, and the pill. The precedent set in Griswold has since been used in all sorts of cases. It laid the groundwork for affirming a woman's right to abortion in Roe v. Wade, as well as the 2013 decision legalizing same-sex marriage. Griswold was also used to strike down sodomy laws that were used to imprison gay people in Texas as recently as 2003. Fundamental in all of these cases is a right to privacy, something not expressly written in the Constitution, but inferred through other amendments. For example, the First Amendment protects the freedom of association, the third against soldiers being quartered in private homes, the fourth against unwarranted searches, and the fifth against self-incrimination. However, conservative scholars will argue that an inferred right is no right at all, as only what is spelled out in the Constitution can be considered valid. Now, this debate will undoubtedly continue, but there can be no question that with a more right-leaning Supreme Court, there is a push among some in government to change precedent and more than half a century of federal law. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Lifebeat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.